Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to invite you to turn back to the book of Proverbs. We've been out of Proverbs for a couple of weeks with things at camp and everything that we have been doing. And um, I, I want to get back there today. I've been excited to get back there today. Today's message is, for me personally, is going to be probably a little different than what I normally preach to you. Uh, I obviously, whenever I preach, I, I preach to myself first. I, I understand that and then, you know, preach it out to you. But uh, there are certain sermons that uh, they are more directed toward me than they are you. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't get any benefit out of it. Uh, in fact, I think you'll get more benefit out of it, understanding what I just said by the time I'm finished today. But I want to talk to you out of Proverbs chapter 20, verses 28 and 29. We had Bible Institute yesterday. We have a, just a great host of, of uh, it really is part of our shingles ministry, and we expanded it to anybody else in the church that wanted to come. Have some tremendous single young men and young ladies that uh, uh, we're working with, and it was just a great, 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 great time yesterday uh, in the Bible together. And I told them that uh, uh, this sermon not only would be directed, first of all, to me, but then certainly to them, and you'll see what I mean, and especially even to our high school kids. Uh, and that's why I'm putting such a, a really uh, emphasis on trying to get the kids that we just, you know, camp is always an incredible time because it's one time a year when we know we come back and every kid there, almost without exception, is, is online and ready to go. And the failure is with parents that they don't keep that thing moving, and the failure is with churches that they don't keep that thing moving. We have to work together. But this message today will help you better maybe understand that and I hope put things in perspective for you a little bit. You know, the book of Proverbs has been, it really has been an incredible book. Um, we know now that the book of Proverbs is our insight into the issues of life, everything that you're going to come up against. Uh, the greatest aspect of, of the book uh, is its ability not only to teach you about what you face in life, and that's vital. Going through life with uncertainty of life, it's a very bad situation to be in. I know you cannot control the circumstances of life. Nobody can. You cannot change what the destiny is that's out there. But boy, you can sure get a leg up on it by understanding when it does come what the Bible says about it and be better prepared for it. And I think the greatest aspect to the book of Proverbs uh, is not only its ability to teach us about what we have to face in life, but it also will teach us about ourselves. You know, the truth about ourselves, the reality of who we really are. In Genesis chapter 32, it's one of my favorite places in the Bible. I've hung out there a lot in my life. It's the place where uh, God and Jacob finally clash together. You know the story of Jacob. Jacob means, the name means schemer. It means supplanter. J Jacob is a picture of a Christian who has schemed and worked all of his life to get whatever he wanted the way he wanted it. And yet he had God in the middle of everything. He's one of, he's one of the great patriarchs in the Bible. He, from him come the 12 tribes that would not be even the nation of Israel if it wasn't for Jacob. But Jacob goes through a transformation process, like we all do. And, and the first part of his life is he's always scheming to get something. He was scheming to get a wife. He was scheming to get land. He was scheming to get cattle. He was scheming to get the birthright. He was scheming to get the blessing. Everything in his life, like so many of God's people, 
was a game for him to scheme to get what he wanted in the midst of keeping God in his life. And it came down to a place in his life in Genesis chapter 32 where God had had enough. I have in my Bible, if you would look at it, uh, uh, across Genesis chapter 32, in big letters written across, the day God gets you alone. And I remember many, many times the days, those days in my life. But Jacob was a perfect example of that. And, and he goes through all of these things. And when God finally meets him and deals with him, the first thing that God asks him, he didn't ask him where he'd been, what he'd done. He didn't talk about all of his issues. The first thing God asked him was, what's your name? Now, God certainly knew what his name was. He says, what's your name? And he had to say back to God, my name is Jacob. My name is Schemer. My name is Supplanter. And it was at that point in his life when he recognized who he really was. That he got honest with himself and the reality in his life that uh, what he really was is when God changed his name. He changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And from that point on, you find a great change in, in his life. And I want to tell you something. You'll never get to the place where you want to get to in your Christian life until you realize who you really are. In a relationship with God, this is where we all have to start. You can't come to God pretending you're somebody other than you are. I'm not saying you've got to have all your problems solved. I'm not saying you've got to have all your issues worked out in life. But I am saying when you come to God to better relationship, the first thing He's going to ask you is, Who are you? Who are you? And you have to begin to answer that question to build the relationship. Proverbs is the book that will always ask us, every time we look around at it, who we really are. This is why people don't like the book of Proverbs. People do not like to be forced to look in a mirror. We have this opinion of ourselves that we are everything that we could want to be, and looking in a mirror sometimes, the mirror of the Word of God, shows us something different. And the real question is, can you get honest, can we get honest with ourselves today? When I preach to whoever I preach to, wherever I preach, or I preach Bible study, or one-on-one, -on -one, the underlying question that's always going to come through, whatever I'm talking about, by the Holy Spirit of God, that's going to lag into your soul is who you really are. Who you really are. Now today, I just want to talk about two little verses, but they're very powerful verses. And I want to talk about Proverbs chapter 20, uh, verse 28 and, and 29. And let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God's blessing today. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you, Father, to take our time together in your word now and to help us sort out all of this and come out away from here today, Lord, with being our cups filled up and really being challenged to be everything that you, we would want us to be. We love you. We thank you for these good folks here, Lord. And we pray, Father, and we all know that we're all in the same boat. There isn't anybody here better than anybody else. Lord, you've given all of us the Word of God. You've given all of us your salvation. It's up to us as individuals to do with it what we decide to do and help us today to do what's right with it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 28 says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and his throne is upholden by mercy. Then verse 29 says, 
The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is their gray head. Now, verse 28 says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and that his throne is upholden by that mercy. Now, let's get this down first for those of you who are a little deeper in your Bible and you want to get some things down. Now, doctrinally, obviously, this will be a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, a time when Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem. This will be in your Bible. The greatest definitive chapters on it will be Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. And you'll find other places, Revelation chapter 20, many places in the Bible. And uh, he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and his righteousness through a rod of iron reigns over the planet earth by truth and mercy. Now, that's the doctrinal application. I want you to get that down. But we want to focus on what it means to you and me here, inspirationally, as it applies to you. It shows us two of the three greatest key ingredients of Christ and his relationship with us and then our relationship to others. Here in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 28, you have mercy and truth. Then you add to it in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says that uh, here's our third key ingredient with which we have with God. It says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard me talk about balance before, how balance will always be three key things that keeps the balance in our life. Three in the Bible is the number of completion. When something has the third part, it's completely balanced out. So now we have the three main elements that make up our relationship with God. First of all, we have truth. Truth is absolute, perfect, unadulterated Word of God. Truth is pure. Truth is the standard by which everything in our life uh, should be judged. It's the spiritual yardstick. The Word of God, by which all the decisions of life that we make. I've been in this business a long time. People, God's people sometimes just, I just have to sit back and I watch them, I listen to them. And sometimes they just, it's, it's crazy, man, where they, I don't know what they think, what they think. You know, whenever you're faced with a major decision in life, all my life I've had people that had to be faced with this, do this, do that, something that was going to ultimately alter their life or, you know, a a major decision. And uh, when they start to talk about it, I I always am curious by which way they they make those decisions. It's always uh, because I understand that the Word of God is truth. And that should be the basis of every decision that we make. And, you know, I've heard them say, you know, well, I prayed about it, you know. I prayed about it, and this is the answer that, that God gave me. I've heard him say, well, you know what, I've just got a really good feeling about this. I've heard him say this. I've heard him say, well, you know what, God just gave me a real peace about this. And when I listen to those things, I think to myself, based on what I do know, how shallow those answers really are and how deceptive those answers can, vary, can be. You know, the Bible already tells, I wouldn't put any stock in your prayer life because the Bible already tells us in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray. So you've got to be careful with that one. You can, you, can, you can make your own prayer. I've seen it all my life. I've done it myself once or twice. Maybe once, not, not twice. But I, we, we, we make our prayer so designed, keeping God in it, but then walk out getting right what we want. You can deceive yourself in prayer. Somebody says, well, I had a good feeling about it. Feeling? You never operate on feeling. Feeling will mess you up every time in your life. 
What you feel about this and you feel about that changes almost hourly. And I'll tell you, you can deceive yourself with your feelings. I've had them say, well, I just got a real peace about it. Let me tell you something. You think you can't come up with a fake peace? You think you can't soothe your conscience by doing what you want to do, making yourself feel good about it, and, and then you come to the place where you say, well, I have a real peace about what I just decided to do. You can fake prayer and come up with the wrong answer. You can fake feeling and come up with the wrong answer. You can conjure up, you can conjure up the peace and come up with the wrong answer. Let me tell you where you can never come up with the wrong answer in the decision you've got to make when it's based on a Bible principle. You can't manipulate principles. That's why people don't want to go to the Bible to, to find out what they should do. They don't want to get a principle for the decisions they've got to make in life. They don't want to find the Word of God and what God says. It's easier to pray about it and control it, have a good feeling about it and control it, or have some false peace about it. But when you get into that book and you make your decisions, not on your prayer life, not on your feelings, and certainly not on your your peace about it. You make it on a clear principle in the Word of God is I'm doing this based on what the book says. And lay it out. Truth. He says truth is the first thing we got to have. Truth is the absolute, perfect, pure Word of God that gives us the ability to make every decision in life, deal with every aspect of life. Your prayer life is worthless if it's not built on truth. Then the second thing he says is mercy. Mercy is our ability to overlook transgressions, to treat a, a, an offender better than, than they deserve. Mercy is the power to pardon somebody when they don't, should not be pardoned. We go in the Bible, one of the greatest studies of mercy that you'll ever find is found back there in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, and then talked about again in Acts chapter 13, verse 34, where it talked about the sure mercies of David. You want to understand God's mercy to you and what your mercy should be to others? Go back and study God's sure mercies to David. David committed two sins that there was no sacrifice for. The only thing he could do was forfeit his life. And yet God came down and didn't require his life. Not only did he not kill him and forgive him, but then he gave to him and his family the sure mercies of David. You want to understand mercy in your life? There it is. Spend some time on that, about 20 years. You want to understand God's mercy to you and how you should give mercy to others? Look at that. Go through that. Mercy is your, the ability to pardon somebody. I remember the movie <coughs> Schindler's List years ago that came out. An incredible documentary of, of, uh, of what was taking place in Europe with the Jews. And Oscar Schindler was a real guy. Uh, he was a little more shady than projected in the movie, but that's okay. And you had there the SS Commandant, whose name was uh, um, Aragon or Aegon or something like that. And he was a real guy too. He got hung uh, a little bit later on after the war. And this guy was killing everybody. He, just for sport. And Schindler, Schindler wanted to try to get him to tone it down because he's just sitting on the front porch and people are walking down through the concentration camp. If somebody's not moving fast enough, he's got a rifle with a power scope on it. He's just shooting them. Whatever doesn't go like, if somebody doesn't do something the way he he shoots them. And he's an, Anton was an incredible psychopath. And Schindler tried to stop him. And he goes in there and he says, he says what do you want to this guy? And the guy says, I want power. 
And he says, and he, Schindler's thinking, he says, well, real power, real power is not the power to kill anybody you want. That's not power. He says, Anton, imagine this. Imagine a king. And he's brought somebody before him who has transgressed the law and now is worthy to die. And he's grappling before the king's feet. He's grappling before the king's feet. And he's asking to be spared. The king has every right legally, jurisdictionally, in the kingdom laws. He has every right to put that man to death. That's not power. Power is when you have the power to kill someone and you say, I pardon you. That's power because that's mercy. Mercy is power in your life. The power of God we talk about is God's ability to overlook our transgressions, that you and I were guilty. We should spend an eternity in the lake of fire. But the power of God is not sending me to hell. Power of God is pardoning someone who shouldn't be pardoned by giving me mercy. Mercy's power. And when a child of God has mercy, that's when they have the real power of God in life. Because they're going to give to others what God has given to them. They're going to understand what God gave to them. Giving something to somebody else without you understanding why you got it in the first place really isn't a very good deal. When you understand the mercy of God in your life, then you'll be able to extend that mercy to somebody else. Then the third thing, grace. You see, grace is mercy applied. Grace is unmerited favor towards somebody who doesn't deserve it. The grace of God to me begins in my life with the mercy of God to me. And once I show somebody mercy, then the next step is for me to give them the grace that they need. Now, these are the three elements that you find. The balance of the Christian life. Truth, mercy, and grace. And you'll find it's hard to find that critical balance today in Christianity. It's hard to find it in churches. You know, you'll find a lot of churches that, that, uh, and Christians who have the truth, but they have no grace. I've seen churches that, you know, that they, they talk about grace. Oh, we have grace. But when you get there, there's no grace. They got the Bible. They got the right Bible. They believe the truth. I know a church in town or out of town that uh, if you show, they, they believe the King James Bible, the Word of God, they believe everything. If you showed up there and you were not dressed the exact way that they thought you should be dressed, you'd be asked to leave. It wouldn't matter if you were lost and didn't know any better. It wouldn't matter if you were struggling in life. They will not take you where you're at. You have to get to their level before they're willing to accept you. That's not grace. Grace is accepting you unconditionally where you're at without any conditions. Grace is the ability to have the truth, but then realize that the truth gives you the ability to give people grace. So you'll find a lot of Christians and a lot of churches who have the truth, but they have no grace or they have no mercy. And most Baptist churches, many of them, are this way. It's because they put grace in their name. It certainly doesn't mean that they have grace. I've seen them called Bible Baptist Church, and they have no Bible. Then you'll find a lot of Christians and churches that have mercy and grace, but they have no truth. I mean, they have mercy and grace to everybody. 
Uh, the sin doesn't even exist in their vocabulary. And you're going to find that most evangelical churches and some of the more liberal churches are this way. Uh, most, and very honestly, this is where most parents will lose their kids, right here under this one. Most parents will lose their kids for one fundamental reason. One fundamental reason. And that is the fact that they may have the truth, but they're not willing, they have too, it's out of balance. They have more grace and they have more mercy, and truth is not used to balance out those two. So when a kid gets in trouble, they never hold them accountable to the truth. They put the truth aside, they make excuses for them, and then they allow them the mercy and the grace, which doesn't do them any good. You can't make, you can't make, they can't come to the place in their life with their children that they can't make the hard choices. They're out of balance. They may have the truth, they may have the Bible, they've been through a thousand parenting classes. But you know what? At the end of the day, when the kid needs to be dealt with through the truth of the Word of God, they can't bring themselves to make those hard choices. And mercy and truth, or mercy and grace rule today, but mercy and, and, and grace are only good. It's only good when you have the truth to balance it out that it doesn't get abused. You see, the three keep each other in context. I mean, mercy and grace to people and to your children is a great thing, but you have to have the truth of the Word of God that grace and mercy does not get abused or misused in the process. And there's the balance. There's the balance for the Christian life. There's the balance for this church. There's the balance for everything in your life as a Christian that you're going to have to deal with. Once you understand who you are, then you realize that God gave you mercy when you didn't deserve it. God gave you grace when you didn't deserve it. So you want to give that to others. But He also gave you the truth which dictates how you use that mercy and grace, not on your own life, but in the lives of others. It's a tremendous principle. It's a tremendous concept. Now let's look at verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is the gray head. Now I told you that the book of Proverbs was a great book for us to understand ourselves and who we really are, and that's true. Understanding ourselves and the time we have in this life to be the most effective in the time that we have. You know, time is something that's relative in the Bible. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. Uh, time changes in the Bible as far as God's concerned and what He's dealing with and what He's doing. Back in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 10, uh, the earth was such that men live incredible long lives. You're going to find that Adam lived to be 930 years old. The Bible says that Noah lived to be 950 years old. The oldest man in the Bible is a guy by the name of Methuselah who lived 969 years. And, and I know, I know, I've heard it all my life. Somebody says, well, they didn't count years back then like they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Uh, you can go back and get Usher's chronology out of the bookstore back there. He starts with the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and takes the genealogies in the Bible, and he runs it all back. These guys actually lived. They actually lived those long periods of time. Now, I don't have time to get into this morning, but there's a reason why nobody ever lived to be a thousand in the Bible. But, uh, but uh, there, there's a reason for that. But they lived long. Oldest one, 969. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine living 969? I'm wore out at 67. Can you imagine 969? Of course, I still, you'd be a kid still at 300. Could you imagine having a grammar school with people in it 300 years old? (laughs) 
Now, this all drastically changes after the flood. I don't know if you know that or not. Life almost after the flood is cut in half. And then in just a short time after that, we get down to what Psalms chapter 90 verse 10 says, that now our lives are three score and ten. That's 70 years. Hey, in the scope of the Bible, we went from 969 years living to now the Bible says 70 is the average. That's quite a drastic change. In fact, Psalms chapter 90 verses 9 through 12 is a key verse in understanding all that we're going to talk about here. So let's look over there for a moment. Psalms chapter 90. It says, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. Now, you know, you'll find that happens after you're dead when you go all your family gets together at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And they say, I remember old Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a scoundrel. Remember that? And they tell stories about you, you know. That's what it's talking about. The days of our years are three score and ten. If by reason of strength they be four score, that's eighty. Yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Now look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Amen. You see, he says that the average today in our lifetime in the Bible is 70 years. That's the average. I know people live past that. Some live to be 80. Some live to be 90. Some, live, some break 100. And, uh, you know, you, you, uh, but the, if you get it all together on a scope, it'd be average out about 70 years. And he does tell you that if you go beyond that because you have inner strength and you go beyond 70, then oh, it's just going to be more labor and sorrow. What he's saying is there isn't any real peace or rest in a long life. And yet everybody wants to live a long time. No, keep in mind, I'm, I'm 67. I'm only three years away from when I got to die. I, I'm looking to go a little beyond that. He says in verse 12, so teach us to number our days that when we apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let's do that for a moment. You know, throughout the Bible, our life on this planet has been referenced to over and over again, like a, the four seasons that we go through in a year's time. I don't know if you know it or not. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, the invisible things of him that are not seen or clearly seen and understood, but are things that God made. When God made everything in his creation, he made it in a fashion by which that it always shows us something. So you have a year, 365 days, and in that year you have four seasons. God shows us every year of our life how our life is going to go. You have a springtime, you have a summertime, you have a fall, and you have a winter. Bible talks about the times and the seasons. It's God's reminder to us every year. When you're born, up to the time, I would say, given the Bible's definition on it, a man doesn't become a man in the Bible till he's 30. So I would say the spring times of our life would go from the time we're born up to about 30 years of age. And then at that point, we move into the summertime in our lives. And I would say that probably the, that's the full bloom of your life. That's where you really, really lonely can start to, you know, understand some things. And that probably runs from 30. Oh, I'm just going to take a wild guess at it. Maybe up to 50. Then we enter into the fall of our lives. Now, the fall will always be the harvest, won't it? This is where you should be reaping what you sowed in the summer. See? And this will bring you from 50 to 70. This is when you bring in the harvest. 
This is where you see your kids return on the investment you invested in them. This is where you see the ministry in your life flourishing because of what you've done for so many years. This is where you look now at your, your, your sons and your daughters and your family. Are they sitting beside you this morning? The investment of what you did in them now in your summertime, now that you're moving into the fall of your life, where's the harvest? See? And then we come into the wintertime. Winter will be the final chapter of our lives. And in the scheme of things in the four seasons, it's the death of everything. Trees die, flowers die, grass dies. Everything dies, and it waits for the resurrection of spring. All through the Bible, your life and my life has been likened to those four. four. And this is why the Bible says that we are to number our days and apply our hearts unto wisdom. We're supposed to remember some things. The lifespan on planet Earth for a man went from Genesis 6, 7, and 8 of 969 to the book of Psalms, which is now just 70 years plus. It's no wonder that James says in James chapter 4, verse 14, that what is your life but a vapor? that appeared for a little while and fadeth away. Along with all that, the Bible says in man's life of three score and ten, seventy years, that there should be seven stages that that man should go through growing spiritually as he's going through these four seasons. They're connected together. I've given them to you very many, many times. The Bible says that when you first get saved that you're a baby Christian over there in 1 Corinthians 5, 1. A baby needs care. A baby needs somebody to watch over them, take care of them. But as you grow spiritually through these four seasons, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, that you move into being a little child. A little child needs care, but they now have the ability to communicate and begin to build some relationships. Then as you continue on through these four seasons, Spiritually, your growth, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, says you grow into children. As you continue to grow through the four seasons, 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, and this goes along with Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29, now talks about young men. And the Bible says that the young men, when you get to this point of your spiritual growth, the greatest asset you have is your strength. You can do things. You can run all day, play all day, play all night. You can go to work 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. Tom will be tired. You get a call on the phone and says, Hey, we're playing softball over here at 11 o'clock tonight. Come on over. You're there. And you played at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. You've got to go to work again at 6. And you're up and you're there. Then the fifth stage as you grow through these four stages of your life, spiritually speaking, growing, found in 1 John again, chapter 2, verse 13, is fathers. Now, fathers is when... Now you have to take responsibility. In the Bible here, it's a picture of when you get involved in ministry. You see, up to this point, you're footloose and fancy free. You can do whatever you want. Some of you young guys, you know, you, uh, and some of you gals, you could do whatever you wanted right up to the point that you got married. Then your life changed. You couldn't go do whatever you want to do anymore. You go home from work and be tired and you get a phone call and, and uh, the guy said, we're going to play softball tonight at 10 o'clock. And you start to say, yeah, yeah, that's great. And you look over and she goes, mm-mm. You don't go. Or you start to say, yeah, man, that is great. And then you hear the echo from the bedroom. Wee! 
man, you say, I can't make it. You see, up to that first section there, it's all about you, or it can be. And spiritually speaking, you've got to go through a process of spiritual growth. But I'm going to tell you, you will never grow past anything if you don't get to the Father's stage and you don't come at some point in your life to take responsibility for somebody else's spirituality and work with them. Then we have fathers. We have fathers. Then we have elders is the next one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Whereas a father, you're really a benefit to people. When you hit the elder stage, you're now you're a real benefit to me. Because an elder is someone who's an overseer with the pastor. They, they, they work together. They understand what's going on. They understand the ministry. They realize what we're doing here. And then the seventh one is the aged. And that is where you, you really come full circle now. So see, as you go through the springtime in your life, you go through the summertime in your life, you go through the fall in your life, you go into the wintertime in your life, you ought to get these seven spiritual stages of growth going in your world. In your world, honestly, and get to that point. And we were told to understand all of this and then to apply our hearts under the wisdom of it, Psalm chapter 90, that they would teach us something. And I want to take Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. I want to teach you something. I want to teach you something that is real personal to me. And all of this will be based on our understanding of where we're at today. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is their gray head. And there's two aspects that I want to look at today. One, the importance of understanding the time that God has given us. You only have a season. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not on the counsel of the godly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sinneth in the scornful, but bringeth forth his fruit in his season. You have a season to your life. You have a season to your fruit bearing. And many of God's people go past that season and never bear one, one piece of fruit. Their whole Christian life is devoid of fruit. They're like that fig tree in the book of Matthew when Christ came out that picked the nation of Israel that they bear no figs. The second thing I want you to understand is, is how to manage that time to be most effective for God in the time that we have. Now last week I talked to you and I preached the message that I preached at your kids camp last week about our investment and making investment in eternal things. And I told you that the only two things in this world worth investing your life in that are eternal is the Word of God and the souls of men. Everything else is temporal. And I, I want you to understand how to manage our lives, manage the time that God has given us to be most effective for God in the time that we have. That's the key today. Now, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29 is great insight on all, for all of us on the management of our lives, life's management. You want to have a lot of money for retirement, you go to a financial management guy. You want to you get your life in order and you want somebody to help get all your stuff together, you get somebody that helps put all the, a management plan together. Well, I want to give you a biblical management plan together today of your life. It says the glory of young men is their strength. You know, that is so true. A young man or a young woman will have the springtime and the summertime of their lives. I'd say putting those two together, that that probably brings them up from birth up through their 
late teens up into their early 20s and 30s and 40s and probably takes them all the way up maybe their 40s and their 50s. They have the ability to go, go for broke for God. Even though they do get married and take on responsibility, they understand how to incorporate the whole family concept together and they, they realize the time that they have so they make the right investment to get the right things in their lives. Their job, their career, whatever they're doing. It's not about what they want to do. It's not about, well, this is really what I want. They look at it through the principles, not the feeling you have. They look at it through the principles. Is this job going to give me more time to be what God wants me to be or less time? See, those are the questions. God never saved you or me, and I think you ought to like what you do. But God never saved you so you could find a job that you would just love so much that you'd forget all about Him in. He gave you a job so you could support yourself as His missionary to do the mission that He's called you to do. And I hope you like your job. I want you to like your job. But at the end of the day, your job is for one reason. That is not to lose yourself in it and never come back to God again. It's about you understanding that God has given you with a job. He's given you the finances. He's given you the resources. Simply that you can make the right decisions in the time that you have. You know, I, I, watch, I watch you couples at camp last week. Camp was a great eye-opener for me. Not the kids so much, because they can do anything, but you young couples. Now, I know how hard it is at camp. You don't get a lot of sleep at night. Kids keep you up. You go all day long. You're dead dog tired. By the end of the night at last camp, I thought when I walked in there, I was in the, I was in the uh, you know, the... Uh, dawn of the dead or someplace. Everybody was just like they were a zombie. But I watch you guys. You see, you went through that whole week. You did the most incredible job that anybody could ever do. And then, what do you do on Friday? You all go back out to worlds of fun again. Another 12 hours of pounding the pavement, pretending you're having a good time. <laughs> you just buried yourself for it. But that's your strength. That's what it's saying there. The glory of a young man or a lady is their strength. You can go all week long and do that and then, yeah, let's go to worlds of fun. And then you're at church on Sunday. Then you were back out at the thing for Jamie's birthday Sunday night. It just never ended for you. See, because the principle, the proverb is true. The glory of young men and their ladies are their strength. I do that, I check into St. Luke's the next day. <laughs> you see, you have the energy, you have the endurance, you have the stamina to go and go and go for God or whatever you want to do. You may get tired, but you, you bounce right back. The older you get, the less that happens. Hey, when I was your age, I was in my 30s, 40s, and some of you know this to be true. I did it all. I did two camps a year, Bible conference, high school camp, two more retreats on top of that. All the work that goes into that, mine was never as good as Jackson and Joe's, but it was, but I, we had a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, brought, I preached Sunday morning and Sunday night. I had special classes. I, I did it all. I ran a full athletic program, little league, softball, volleyball. I did the whole nine yards. Not anymore. You see, young men to have the strength to do those things, 
But the older you get, the less you can do. And it comes down to understanding, what do you do with that? What do you do in the face of the fall and the wintertime that's going to come in my life quicker than yours, but it's going to come in yours? I'll tell you what you do. You apply your hearts to wisdom and understanding, and you understand the four seasons. And I'm not talking about the musical singing group. But the verse is saying that a young guy or a young gal has the ability to go Mach 4 with their hair on fire. But they don't have the wisdom of life and understanding through the experiences to put all of life together. They need the gray head of the man of God. You see, a, a young guy or a young gal, their strength and their youth, he has the drive to get it done, but he lacks the understanding to see the real from the phony sometimes. He lacks the ability to discern everything from the Word of God through the principles. Somebody said one time, a young man has, has heat, but he has no light. An old guy has the light, but he has no heat. A young man in his strength or a young gal in his strength, they always got to prove something. You ever notice that? Watch a softball. I've watched a guy all night long just try to hit it over the fence. Well, what's the purpose of that? So the ball went over a fence. That just means somebody's got to climb the fence to go get your ball. Does that make you a real man? Does that make you something special? But you see him. And I watched him. I watched him. I watched the guy, and he was a good ball player. He hit that thing over the fence, and he's, he's, he's running around the bases, and everybody's yelling, and he's taking his hat off and waving it like he just, he just came back from the moon or something, you know? Guys always got to have the fastest cars. You ever notice that? The hottest looking car. I was there. I had a 64 GTO. That wasn't fast enough. I got a 67 GTO. That wasn't fast enough. So I got a Z28 Camaro. And then I got saved and traded in and got a, Ford, a Chevy Vega. <laughs> I told you that story how that I got right with God, and uh, I had the hottest look at 1972 black with, with silver stripes Z28 Camaro you ever saw in your life. Mickey Thompson tires on the back, on the front. Craig or Mag, yeah, we're talking about it. I mean, that thing, this sounded, it sounded, it's, you could hear me coming four miles away. It was something else. And boy, when you put down on that thing and put it down in first gear and stepped on it, I mean, you, it was something else. I always wanted one. You know, I just, you know, a GTO was good, but it wasn't a Z28. You know what, I, I mean, I, 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 had, I never had one, but the fastest muscle car I ever would, dreamed of in my life was one of those Chevelles, one of those 396 Chevelles, you know. Any year, I don't care. And I don't know why I never got one. I had a GTO, but I was never, never, I mean, it was fast, and it was good, and I loved it, and it really got on it. But you know what, it wasn't a Chevelle. And I don't know why I never got a Chevelle. It's like, you know, you always want a vet, and you always want a vet, you always want a vet, but you say, well, I can't afford it, so I'll get, a, I'll get a Camaro or a Firebird, and it's really hot and really nice, but you're driving around. You know what you're saying to yourself? It ain't a vet. 
I was there. I went to that, I went to, I got right with God, went to camp, church camp. And I parked in the parking lot. I come in, and you can hear me coming all the way down Deerfield Road. <laughs> Pulled into that thing, you know, and shut the engine off, man. It had idled down. And I went in there, you know, and I just got right with God. It was a senior high week. And a kid come out, we're out there, and I think a kid come out, and I was getting ready to go home that night and go, go ready for work the next morning. And the kid come over and he said, he said, sir, he said, is that your car? You know, yeah, sure is. You know, I still have a little bit in me. I said, yeah, that's my car. And he said, wow. And I'm saying, yeah, wow. You know what he said to me? Boy, God got a way of taking them out of the mouth of babes. Thy word is perfected. That little kid looked up at me and he says, man, what a car. If you had a car like that, what do you want to be in a place like this for? Church camp. That did it. That was all I needed to hear. I beat that kid senseless and sent him to a swoon. <laughs> the next day. No, not the next week, not the next month, the next day. I had to go buy the Chevy dealership where I bought that sucker, and I pulled in there, and I went in there, and I said, I want to trade this in. He says, okay, well, what do you want? And I said, I want one of them Chevy Vegas. You know what a Chevy Vega looked like? It looked like a phone booth with wheels on it. And I, I, I lost money on it. I lost my shirt on it. The Z28 was a lot faster, a lot harder, a lot more expensive than a, than a Vega. Four-cylinder Vega. With little bitty tires on it. I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I didn't want anything that resembled the world in any way, shape, or form in my life. But I had to prove something. And you see, young guys will do that. They'll try to prove something. They, they always will. They, they want to be the best. And, I, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's some character flaw. I like that drive in somebody. I, I like when we get down to tournament games that people are really, they want to win. I've won the tournament game probably more time than I deserve in softball due to my excellent skills at pitching. But, but <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know what, end of the day, I don't care. As long as we get to go eat over at Jason's Deli afterwards, I'm good. I'm just as happy if you win as I win. And I, winning to me has, you know, it doesn't prove anything. But a young guy, a young gal, they always got to win. See, they always got to prove something. Where the man with the gray head, he understands that the Word of God in Christ has already proved all things. See, you just rest in that. Where a young man will. Uh, charge in and hit it head on and work his tail off. An old man will sit back and draw off his ex life's experiences and he'll work smarter, not necessarily harder. You see, this whole verse is simply about understanding our cycle of life and realizing that the greatest time of our life will probably be when we get the gray head of, 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 of life, when we are, have the ability to pass on to others what we've learned. You see, this point in my life, I'm in a race against time. I totally understand it. I want to get to you everything I know and have learned before I can't do it anymore. You know, 99% of the pastors, they never see this. 
or uh, you know, they, 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 they hit the fall of their life when they get to be 60, 65, and you know, they've had 40 years in the ministry, and they think that's enough. You know, I've suffered enough. I've paid my dues. You know, I, I'm going to retire now off the la-la land wherever the old retired preachers go. Or they'll jump from church to church to church all of their lives. You can't build anything that way. Look, the reality is just when they should be the most valuable, they're gone and they never pass on anything. I tell you the truth, most of them don't have anything to pass on anyhow. And only the judgment seat of Christ will it be revealed, all the damage that is done by not understanding our life and the ministry and the time that we have to do what we need to do. And I completely see it and understand it in my own life. Hey, I'm 67 years old. I'm out of gas in many ways. I get that. You know, camp, doing all the things that you do, I, I mean, uh, doing all by myself, it ain't going to happen. That's why God has given me all of you guys who can do it. I'll talk about that in a minute. Hey, I'm in the November of my life, and I'm heading into December. But I also understand that I'm at the greatest point in my life in ministry. I used to think back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, that I had reached the pinnacle of my ministry. What a fool I was. See, I had a lot of light. I had a lot of uh, heat, but I didn't have any light. In the last 20, 30 years of my life, God has reshaped and retrained my whole thinking process. God has overflowed my cup much more than I ever would deserve. Brother, I stand before you as a guy who's got a full cup. And now I have the ability to take what I've learned and pass it on and pour it into your cup. And get you and show you young guys and you young gals how to do for me what I can no longer do. That's what ministry is together. I don't have the heat anymore. You do. But I got the light. You don't. Let's merge those two together and bring you through that growth process. Single ministry yesterday. Told you guys yesterday. The investment I'm going to make in you guys. I'm going to give you everything I can, everything I got, everything I've learned. Anybody in this church, through Bible study, through the Bible Institute, you know, uh, we, we, uh, we, we disciple you, and we give you discipleship too, and my main goal for all of you is to, is to learn the principles of the Bible. I talk about it all the time. Principles are probably the hardest thing to learn in the Bible because there's just no set pattern by which you can just sit down and put lessons together because principles are connected to every different aspect of life. So what I did in the, what I did in the, in the, uh, uh, in the people ministry, those of you who have been in there, oh, what, three years? I just started in Genesis. I thought that was the best way to do it. Start in Genesis and then just work our way through the Bible, listing out every principle with its examples right there. Where were you in Second Chronicles now? My, my race against time is to get those of you who want it, those of you who will do something with it, everything that I have to give you what I've got so you can do for me through ministry that I can't do anymore. And camp's a great example of that. Not only do you do it for me, you do it better than I did it. Do you know how many pastors would have a tough time with that? You doing something better than them? I know pastors that if you did anything better than them, you're in trouble. Now, you know what? I expect you to do it better than me. You're sharper. You're smarter. 
I want to make you better than me. You need to be better than me. You know why? Because I'm not always going to be around here and somebody better understand where this has got to go. And you won't get there by being mediocre. Not in the world we live in today. Now let me say this to you. This is the best advice I could ever give anybody. So listen carefully. Someday, some of you guys will go into full-time ministry. You'll pastor a church. You'll do it the right way. Some of you women will marry a guy who's going to pastor a church, hopefully here, and as a team you'll go out from here. It's just a matter of time. Well, let me give you some advice. My own personal advice. Take it or leave it. I don't really care. But it's true. Never, and I mean never, try to do that without an old guy with gray hair in your life that knows how to do it better than you do. You always want to be able to fall back on their wisdom. Let me tell you something. When you get into the ministry, when you pastor a church, you're going to face some incredible pitfalls. You'll be blindsided by so many things that you have the, you have the heat to do the work. You have the desire to do the work. But you don't have the light of experience to see what's coming your way. You don't have the discernment. You don't have the discretion. You haven't learned yet that the very people that you'll invest your life in, that you'll let your guard down, will lie to you, deceive you. It's the ministry. And you got the light, you got the, you got the heat, man. You're ready to go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. What you fail in is you don't have the light to understand what's out there. The ministry is not only the greatest job you'll ever have, it's also the hardest job you'll ever have, simply because of what's waiting for you out there. You see, if you were president of the United States, the devil wouldn't care. If you were president of a, of a CEO of a big company, the devil wouldn't care. If you worked at a, a great big factory, made lots of money, the devil wouldn't care. The moment you step into that pulpit, he takes a personal interest in you. And many times they use the very people that you thought were your friends. I'm just telling you. I'm not. I'm, I'm just saying, hey, it's life in the ministry. If you can't handle it, go sell used cars. I'm just telling you. You'll face some incredible pitfalls. I look back at that. I, I, I look back at my almost. 50, almost a half a century in the ministry and think how many times I would have failed if it wasn't for that gray-headed man in my life that always guided me away from some of the stupid things that I was headed for. Old Mel Sabaka, I burned up his phone when I got into the ministry because I knew he knew more about it than I did and I knew I was faced with some pitfalls and things coming my way and it didn't take me any further. I may be, I'm not the smartest man in the world, never claim to be, but I will hold this claim. I am the fastest one in the slow class. (laughs) Boy, I faced some things right off the bat. I didn't know what to do. I'd call him up on the phone and I'd say, man, what do I do with this? And he'd laugh and he'd say, here's what you do with that. I would have never made it. I would have never made it. And you know what? When he left Kent State University back in the day, and he got saved, and he decided the King James Bible was the Word of God, he was going to get into ministry. If he wouldn't have had Dr. Ruckman, he would have failed a million times. 
And we all talk about Dr. Ruckman and how much we love him and how much he did for us. And he did. But I want to tell you something. If old Pete didn't have you pile in his life, he never would have made it. You never want to get to the place in your life that you think you're so smart and you're so good and you're so special. That's why God gives us the old men with gray hair who's got the light. Don't have the heat. You got the heat, but you don't have the light. When you put the two together, you got a great ministry. I remember one time. I remember one time we went to uh, Chicago, Illinois, to a guy that had a ministry for, to military guys. And uh, he, this guy flew out about, oh, I don't know, 19 or 20 pastors. And uh, to his organization there, and he put us up in a five-star hotel, fruit basket in the room. Uh, everybody had a, a card there with a $100 bill in it to buy whatever you wanted. And I'm telling you, we, and I was rooming with Mel. <coughs> we were staying together, and I was, and we went down to dinner that night, and the guy laid out his ministry the whole nine yards. I bought into that thing so quickly I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. The guy took up an offering at the end at the sermon there, you know, and I walked there. Mel was sitting next to me, and when the offering plate went by, Mel trumped the $100 that he gave him in that offering plate. We went back up to the room, and I said, what's, what's, wasn't that the greatest thing you ever heard? And he said, that guy is phony as a $3 bill. He said, I'm telling you right now, he's phony as a $3 bill. I said, come on, man. What are you talking about? He's got a great heart. He did this. I mean, the sermon was good. He says, I'm telling you, son, he's as phony as a $3 bill. He was right, too. Took some time, but he was right. Now, I got to confess something to you. I kept my $100. (laughs) 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 Woo! Paul said it. <laughs> Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That's the cycle that it goes through. And I know, I know, I know, I know. We got the Bible. I understand. I got the Bible. But what good is the Bible if you can't use it correctly? I mean, I don't know if you know this or not. You may have the right Bible sitting in your lap this morning, but that don't mean a thing because that Bible will only develop itself in your life through the experiences that you put in your life of doing the work of God and letting God exercise your senses, as Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 says. Man may have the heart to do the work, but not the light that he needs to always see the work the way it really is. And having... And learning the ability to use truth, mercy, and grace, and when not to. There's a great example of that in Bible. It's in Proverbs. We're not here yet. <clears throat> when we get to Proverbs chapter 26, we'll, we'll have some fun with it. <clears throat> this is one of the great things that I talk about. This, is, this proves my point. Two verses, 26.4, 26.5, back to back, completely contradicting each other. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be also like him. 
Next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Seemingly two verses that contradict each other. I'll tell you right now, they don't contradict each other. They're in perfect context, but it takes the light of understanding the Word of God and its principles to know how to use both those verses. Knowing the difference. The experience of a lot of years. Do you ever notice how <clears throat> all presidents, they either have one term or two terms? <clears throat> in many cases, those terms should be in a federal prison, but that's beside the point. <clears throat> they all want to leave a legacy behind them. Every one of them gets to build a library, and they want a legacy. Uh, President Obama, was he wanted Hillary to win so desperately. I don't think he really cares for Hillary personally. They probably are not very good friends. They're political allies. But he wanted her in there for one reason, and one reason only. He had done some things in his presidency that he was afraid if the Republicans got in, they would take away, and he would destroy his legacy. And he wanted her in there because he knew that her mindset would, no matter what she wanted to do, she would leave in place the things that he did and preserve his legacy. Now, I want to tell you something. As a Christian, you're going to leave a legacy behind. I want you to know that. As a child of God, male or female, you're going to leave a legacy behind of what you did with what God gave you. That legacy will be in your family. <clears throat> It'll be what you do with the time that you have, how you really view it <clears throat> and put it uh, in, into play in your life. For me, my legacy is only two things, and it's very simple. I only have two goals in life, and my legacy is simple. My legacy is simply leaving behind as many young men and young ladies who believe a book and give them all that I have learned to carry on uh, when I hit the January and the Februarys of my life. My legacy only needs to be pouring into you everything that I've learned so you now can do for me uh, in my ministry what I can no longer do uh, any longer. My greatest asset to the ministry, according to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29, is no longer what I can do, but now teaching you what I have learned. And you know as well as I do, in leadership you always lead by example, and you lead from the top down. Now there will come a time <clears throat> when I can't teach or preach anymore. I'm not talking about Tomorrow. And it's hard to believe that a day will come. And it'll get here when you look up here and I won't be here anymore. I think of old Bob Jones Sr., what a, what a tremendous preacher he was who impacted Dr. Ruckman's life that set him on a course where he was who he was. And boy, if you could find most of the stuff you hear on Bob Jones Sr. preach on, is not the real Bob Jones Sr. I mean, it is, but it's what he would do in the chapels at Bob Jones University. You don't find the sermons that he preached when he was on a circuit, man. And yet everybody looked at him and what a great, strong man he was. And I'm sure that they thought, never thought about a time when Bob Jones Sr. would not be able to preach again. And you know what? In the last years of his life, when he had his 
January, February, and March of his life. He got old and he got senile. They kept him at Bob Jones University and took good care of him. But he had preached all of his life, and the fire of preaching the Word of God was in his bosom as it would be any real preacher. And here was a man who stood up and preached and preached and preached all his life, and now he could no longer preach anymore. They would find him walking around the campus of Bob Jones University with his overcoat on and his hat and his little briefcase and a Bible under his arm and be walking up and down asking the students where was the train station because they had to go preach. He couldn't preach anymore. He wasn't on his way to the train station. He was an old senile man now who had, who had lost his way. And all he had now was the memories of what he had done and he knew that God had called him to preach and even in his senile state with that little briefcase and that little Bible and that little hat on his head, he's walking through the campus saying, I got to preach. I got, there'll come a time when you won't be able to preach anymore. There'll come a time when you get to the season of your life that you will not be able to disciple anymore. You'll not be able to do it. Some of you maybe will never even be able to read the Bible anymore. You won't be able to turn the pages and you will not be able to take your life and infuse it into the life of somebody else. No preacher wants that. Every preacher I ever met wants to go out in a blaze of glory. You know, die in a pulpit with their boots on. Preaching the Word of God. I used to hear Mel Sabaka and Pete Ruckman get up in that pulpit, and I've heard them say it a thousand times that they want to go out when they go, they want to go out preaching the Bible, dying with their boots on. Preaching out in a blaze of glory. Yet both died in an emaciated state by cancer or some other disease. Both wasted away in a hospital bed for months, agonizing. There was no blaze of glory. There was no fiery sermon that God reached down and snatched them out. No, it was just a hospital bed with their family behind them, emaciated down to nothing, to the point where you can't speak anymore, that you can't recognize anymore. And then they put all of the drugs in you to stop the pain and you just sleep off. That's the way they went. Old age of January, February, and March came and took them. And how hard it is for us to watch a fireball for God who all of his life stood and preached the word of God just waste away to nothing and pass on. You know, I've learned some things through my years. And I've watched these guys and I've heard these guys and I've been around these guys and I've loved these guys and they've taught me so much. But just watching how this thing goes through springtime, summer, fall, and winter. The three score and ten. I've learned two great truths. We don't get to choose how we die. As much as we want to, as much as we want to pretend we're that guy who's going to stand in the pulpit and go out in the blade, we don't get to choose how we die. I want to tell you something. You do get to choose how you live. You get to choose how you live.
we built this church based on the Word of God. We took this church and we started with just my family and just a, a core people and it, God blessed us and brought everybody here and I tell you, uh, you know, through my years here and through my years, we built uh, ourselves around the book and God added to us everybody we needed. He took out the trash when it needed to be gone, but he brought in the solid people that kept this work alive, that kept growing, who want the nuggets of gold that keeps this thing moving forward, who keeps interjecting the energy into it to keep it moving in the right direction. I just never say much about this, and so many of you do this, and I don't say this so you will do it. Don't do it. If you haven't done it before, I'm going to say shut up. <laughs> greatest privilege, greatest privilege for you guys and you gals is to call me dad. The greatest privilege I could ever have. It's the greatest compliment anybody could ever pay me. Now you call me grandpa and I'll kill you. <laughs> it's the greatest privilege I have. Because it, it, it leans to the fact that, that you and I have something. That together God has taken a little bit of what he's given me and, and, and given it to you. And I'll tell you this, I got no plans to give up anytime soon. I'm, I have no time to retire. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at the prime of my life right now. I cannot do much, but I can give you everything that I've learned, if you're willing, as much as you want. And I'll be honest with you, right now, God's given me a little rebirth. I've got, I'm in a renaissance period of my life. I am. I'm in pretty good shape. I, I'm pretty healthy. I can walk for the first time in my life. Believe it or not, I've got taller two inches. I'm really good. My mind's fairly sharp. I still carry two cell phones so I can call the one when I can't find it to find out where it's at. I had to lose softball and, and volleyball. That was really hard for me. Now, you know, there's some things in your life when you can't do them anymore, it kind of puts a big exclamation over your head that you're, you're just moved into a new phase. But even God takes care of that. You probably haven't seen it in the paper yet, but I just last week was the shuffleboard champ at, at John Knox Village. <laughs> I whacked those old people so bad they didn't even know what hit them. I had to play the part. I got my gym shoes with the Velcro strips on them, you know, like Will wears. <laughs> things will change in my life. And in time, things will change in your life. I'm just farther down the line than you are. Most of you, this is the beauty of our church, most of you are in that prime time of your life of the spring and the summer. Many of some of you are in the fall. We don't really have anybody that's in the winter yet. But we're all going to get there. We're all going to get there. But I will never go away and be done. When I can't preach or teach anymore, then I'll clean the building. I'll work in the elementary. I'll set up chairs. I'll get on one of the cleaning crews. I'll do whatever I can do. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's a thing where uh, it, it, it's us together as a team. It's what God has given me. I mean, I have $800 trillion worth of Bible in my brain. Almost 50 years worth. And anybody can have as much as they want. 50 years of experiences and issues. 50 years of mistakes and good things. 50 years of problems. 50 years of dealing with parents and dealing with their kids. 
50 years of teaching and preaching and every scenario, dealing with every scenario you could ever imagine from the petty little things that are pedophiles of life. 50 years of seeing every kind of pastor, every kind of church, every time of Christian, every kind of denomination, to seeing the great successes and the great failures from 1950 to 2017, to witness the departure of the, of the New Testament church and Christianity from the Word of God to what it is now, just an empty shell. And I want to, and when I leave this earth, and finish my race. I want to leave a legacy of young men and young ladies who love that book that I first loved, that I gave to them, and they have put it in a desire of their heart to carry it on. A legacy of men and women who, with the truth of the Word of God, now having the mercy and the grace to use it. And I understand, I, I would be a fool to stand up here and think that, that, that everybody in this room today, or everybody who hears this, is going to do that. I know that's not reality. For many of you, the cost involved will simply be too great. But again, I have learned over the years that it just takes one person to change the world. And that one person may be sitting here today. Taking, God taking this little way station of truth and a little basement and a little old former antique mall a building that if you went the wrong turn, you wind up in a chiropractor. If you go the other way, you wind up in a fly shop. And if you go the other way, you wind up with a tailor. And if you go out the back door, you can buy a piano. <laughs> or you can get your tuxedo, but be careful. <laughs> God just taking this little way station of truth, a little basement of an antique mall, no grand building, I mean, uh, no big auditorium that seats 300,000 people, 30,000 people. Just a little way station of truth. Allowing God of the universe to take it to the ends of the earth. Through you. Just a small fountain of truth in a vast ocean of apostasy. In this church, God has given me the people. They've given me all I need to get the job done. Adding more all the time. Welcome. Now I want to continue to give you people all that God has given me. You see, I got the gray head. You got the strength. Let's use our lives together to get the job done. That you keep doing the work that I can't do, I'll keep pouring into you what you don't have, and we'll make a perfect match. And let all of us begin to number our days and apply our hearts unto wisdom. Remember, he said, mercy and truth preserve the king and his throne is upholden by mercy. The glory of young men is their strength and the beauty of old men is their gray head. There's the last thing I want to say to you. Note the glory of young men. But when it talks about the old man, it doesn't give him any glory. You see, the young man is seeking glory for himself many times. And the old man is beautiful because of, through his years, he's learned to give the glory to God. 
You know, you take that word beautiful or beauty in the Bible, and when you run it through, you really understand what the man of God really sees and what makes him so beautiful in light of the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 3, the Bible talks about a beauty of a good countenance on our face. That comes because of the good conscience that you have with God following the principles. Psalm 48, verse 2, talks about the joy of the Lord will make beautiful all the situations in life. Beautiful for situation on the sides of the north. The Word of God, the old man learns that every situation lends itself to the glory of God and is beautiful in that sense. He learned in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God will make everything beautiful in God's own time. So he has the patience to wait for God to do it the way he wants to do it. He, he learned in Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 4, how beautiful he is to God. And in that great book, it shows where God sees me and how I should see him and how God, when he looks at me, how beautiful we really are to him. The old man learns in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 20, how his church is so beautiful. For he says there, thy beautiful flock. The old man in Matthew 23, verse 27, he's learned the fake things that appear to be beautiful, but are really not. The old man in Isaiah 52, verse 1, the older he gets, he begins to see the beauty of his garments at the judgment seat of Christ. In Isaiah 64, verse 11, the old man sees the beauty of his house, our body, our temple of God. And in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 42, he sees the beautiful crown upon his head at the judgment seat of Christ. And he realizes that in this life that God saved him from, that he's supposed to <clears throat> number his days and apply his heart unto wisdom because he only has three score and ten. And he's learned from Romans chapter 10, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of them that carry the gospel. You see, that's it. The old man with his gray head through his life, with all the experiencing and the wisdom that he gets by going through all he goes through, there's understanding of God. He'll see what's really beautiful in life. With a young kid, he'll want to do it. He'll have the fire to do it. But he's not yet had the experience of life to be able to see what really is beautiful in life to God. Because in most cases, it's not what we think is beautiful, but what God thinks is beautiful. So this is a great proverb. And it's a great verse that shows you that we're all in this together. And though I may be in the November of my life going into the December, you're going to be there too sooner or later. And it's a time for me to realize and understand that I have for many, many, many years that I can't put the effort and do all the physical things, but I can put extra effort, which I have been, into giving you the spiritual things. Every sermon I stand up here and preach, brother, it isn't something that I just throw together because I've got to have something for Sunday. The greatest thing in my life is like Institute yesterday and like Thursday night Bible study where I don't come in with anything planned. That I'll have enough confidence in God that I can just open it up and knowing that I've spent enough time in the book and God's got enough uh, of him in me that whatever you ask, God's going to take over that Bible study and there's no real human man involved. It is the book and the Holy Spirit of God because i got nothing prepared. And I can give you those things. 
We can sit in institute and I can walk you through and show you every experience of life so you can begin to learn it and take it because you're in the prime of your life. You see, I'm trying to do for you in a lot less time than it took for me to do it. And that's okay because we're in a race against time. And the more you do for God, the more God uses the experience and exercises those senses, and the more you understand what's going on around you. The more you don't jump into things too quickly. The more you don't, you don't, you realize the value of somebody with wisdom and understanding that you fall back on. And you follow through those things and let God bring you to the place where when you get to that point in your life, you'll have a whole bunch of people around you who are looking to you. I'll be gone. You'll be here. And you'll be giving to them what I gave to you. You pile's gone. He gave it to Pete. Pete's gone. Pete gave it to Mel. Mel's gone. I gave it to, Mel gave it to me. And someday I'll be gone. And I'm giving it to you. That's the way it works. Every head bowed, never eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for today. Thank you for these good people here. Lord, I, I just love them so much. They're everything that I could ever want. And Lord, I thank you for uh, my family who uh, is, stands by me in the ministry and works with me in everything that I do. And Lord, are a very vital part of everything that I try to accomplish. And that, that Lord, that they uh, pick up my slack so many times. And then all of my family here, Lord, that pick up the slack, that do so much for me. That remember the things that I forget. That keep me uh, in line with the things that I need to do. That do for me uh, when they see me uh, screw something up just to cover it, to make it work. And never be critical about it. The, the, the men and the women who love me and love this work and that together we, we take the wisdom that I have and the, and, the, and the strength that they have and we mold it together to do a work for you in these last days. Teach us, Lord, to understand the seasons of our lives. Don't let us get into the January and February before we find out we have made a mess out of our lives. Don't let us get there till we made a mess out of our families. Don't let us get there until we made a mess out of everything that God has called. Teach us now to number our days and apply our hearts unto wisdom. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Sake we ask it. Amen. I'll call you back up here in about five minutes and we'll uh, get set up for restart. God bless you. You're dismissed.